Welcome back to another episode of Arts Across NC, a podcast by and about the North Carolina Arts Council. This episode is our final episode of season two. Back in February, when Sam and I first began prepping and recording for the podcast, masks were required at most business establishments, and we were working fully remote. If there is one thing we've learned, it is that post-pandemic is a term that doesn't quite accurately capture our global reality. We also know that we've been navigating and adjusting to a new normal. Vitality, fellowship, and healing are the qualities the arts spark, and they are what has helped North Carolina rebuild and emerge resiliently from the pandemic. Here in North Carolina, the arts are back. As we wrap up this season, we introduce you to Piedmont Opera and Stokoa Valley Cultural Arts Center, two arts organizations that had contrasting experiences during the pandemic. One was forced to shut down almost completely because of its location and the vulnerable aging population it serves while the other was the only opera company in North Carolina to produce during the state-mandated lockdown. Fast forward to today, both organizations are thriving. Their calendars are filled, and most importantly, they are serving their communities. I first want to introduce you to Stokoa Valley Cultural Arts Center. Almost 100 years ago, the building that the Stokoa Valley Cultural Arts Center occupies was known as the Stokoa Union School. Today, the Cultural Arts Center exists as we know it because a group of people was committed to restoring the historic building to its original role as the center of its community. According to its website, the Culture Arts Center's mission is to serve the people of Stokoa and Graham County through programs and services that benefit all members of the community. This is accomplished through the preservation and promotion of Southern Appalachian Mountain culture and through the restoration of the historic Old Stokoa School. My name is Amber Benton, and I am the program director here at the Stokoa Valley Arts and Cultural Center. Amber, a wife and mom of six boys, grew up in Robbinsville, North Carolina, a small mountain town with a population of less than 600 and is new to her position. When we spoke, it had been only two months since her start date. With an already small staff, the pandemic forced a reset for the Culture Arts Center. The origins of the building the center occupies is beyond fascinating, so I asked Amber to start our conversation off with a little history lesson. Emma, I'm so excited to talk with you today, and I'm really excited that, you know, you have a unique perspective as we talk about the Arts and Culture Center at Stokoa Valley. So can you tell me a little bit about the history of Stokoa Valley Center? Yeah, I'd love to. The center, let's start with that name, because it really is what this place is all about, and it's it's how it was founded. The Stikoa Valley Cultural Arts Center is a nonprofit, which is housed in a 1926 rock schoolhouse, and um, it was known as a community school. And um, I think these kinds of schools were built all over the country at this time because we have people coming through giving when we give tours of our building and they go, oh, we had a school just like this where I grew up, but it's gone now. Mm-hmm. And um, and so in 1926, the community of Stikoa came together. And if you look on our website, you can see this beautiful picture of the entire settlement here. They came out and they built this this school from the rocks, from this ground for their children to go to school here. We have this uh, picture from dedication day of everyone who came out. And we've actually, you know, through some uh, archival research uh, and involvement from our community, been able to identify almost everyone in this picture. 
And so this was an operational school from 1926 well into 1980s. It was the 1980s in which the state um, began some consolidation efforts and especially in rural regions with small populations began forcing schools to close. Um, Stikola really, really fought to keep their school. Um, they fought for a long time uh, to keep it open and managed to keep the elementary and middle school open into the mid nineties. Um, but even, even while this was a school, it was a center for gathering for this small community, uh, holidays, festivals, you know, different extracurricular things in the community would come out and use this as a gathering place. The school here has had a history, a long history of music as well, in that in the 1940s and the 1950s, when some of bluegrass and country music was getting its start and, and the big great names like Earl Scruggs, Lester Flatt, Chet Atkins, the Carter family, Bill Monroe were touring through the mountains. This was a place where they came to play. And so the stage that we have here and the auditorium that we fully restored has a long history of, of music being played for, you know, kind of full auditorium audiences here in this location. So our An Appalachian Evening Concert Series that we do every summer, which has been running for 23 years, is really in many ways just a continuation of that long tradition of Appalachian and mountain music that's always been a part of this place. We know that the pandemic has impacted rural communities far more vastly than anywhere else across the country. So can you describe three ways that the pandemic disrupted the center? It's interesting because the center really kind of serves in three prongs. We kind of look at it like we have a three-legged stool. One, we serve as a community center for our local population. There's many ways in which we do that. The second kind of purpose and the way that we operate in our operations is we also serve as a welcome center for tourists who are coming into Graham County. We're, we're right by one of the main thoroughfares into the county. And we have a playground and picnic tables and outdoor bathrooms, public restrooms. And so it was just a good fit to partner with our travel and tourism as a welcome center. And then the third component of that is our um, cultural and arts center and event space. And so that serves our, our music uh, venue as a part of that, event rentals as a part of that. And our gallery, we have an artisan gallery, which is open to the public five days a week, is a part of that. It operates as its own business. And so really the only uh, revenue sources that we have for the center are, are really in that event and music venue and our gallery. Those are the main sources of revenue outside of operation funding and, and support that we get from, from grants for programming. And all of that completely shut down. So any revenue source that we had really was shuttered. And then the welcome center component for most of 2020, when we were under a state mandated shutdown and lockdown, we really didn't have a tourism industry here. Or if we did, it was only for complete out outdoor activities. So people were hiking, people were um, maybe traveling to different places but they weren't doing any indoor activities. And as far as a community center for us, um, we serve a very elderly population for the most part. 
Um, and they were very cautious and we were very cautious for their safety. We live in a county which does not have a uh, hospital and we have to share medical resources with all of our surrounding counties. And so I think that played uh, played a part in um, really just kind of closing the doors during 2020. Not to mention, we didn't really have the staff to support that. The changes of precautions, extra cleaning, anything like that with, with two full-time people, that's a lot of extra, a lot of extra staff and work that that would have taken. We weren't set up to have any sort of a virtual pivot here. We have many, many of our of our audience and people that we serve who don't even have an email address. So when I call my volunteers or I want to get the word out for a potluck, it's picking up the phone. I can't just hit send on an email list. This was the first year the organization did not hold its annual Appalachian Evening Concert Series. The following year, they had the resources and knowledge to program a virtual version of the event. Following CDC guidelines, they also began operating on a hybrid-like schedule, offering one class three times a week, but by this time, whether or not one wore a mask became politicized. The center was really following CDC guidelines and requiring masks inside the building. And as many people may know, in our in rural regions, and that became kind of a political politicized decision, even though for us it wasn't. It was really about the health and safety of our community and our staff and employees. And so I think even for some events that we did offer, the participation for that, because masks required, might have been less than it had been if we were in uh, an area of the state in which masks were more acceptable. Now that programming um, has started back up and there's this, you know, re-entering into engaging with the arts and engaging with Stacoa, what has been the reception from the population that you serve? Excitement, relief. I, I think everybody is, is so ready for things to go back to normal, right? Our audience is looking forward to the, the things that we're offering. I think there has been, though, a, a certain amount of loss of momentum, especially, you know, when you think about marketing or reaching your audience. And so when you have had two years of very little things happening, like social media, for instance, you know, when you lose that engagement in social media, and that's just one small little component, it takes a while to rebuild that. Um, when you've, when you've lost that participation for two years of people coming out to your music you kind of have to work a little bit harder to get back in people's minds and memories um, to say that we are, we are still here. We're going to have a concert, um, you know, come out. In many ways, we're working with new people. Um, we're working with new staff. When we work with our support agency like WNC Arts and um, the Appalachian Regional Commission and lots of our support organizations also have new staff. And so there's a certain amount of, getting everyone up to speed on how things work and are connected. And that's definitely played a part into my position here as program director is I'm constantly still learning how things are run and operated and what are my communication avenues. But our audience response is one of relief and positive and excitement, anticipation. Um, And so we're really looking forward to a great year. Added to that in our county, Graham County, North Carolina, we're celebrating our sesquicentennial 
this year. So this is our 150th anniversary. And so for things like our Harvest Festival, we're really trying to do something more special and larger, not only because we've had to cancel it for two years, but also because we're celebrating this special anniversary. More than 200 miles away, located in Winston-Salem, the pandemic put a halt on Piedmont Opera's production of The King and I. The show would have been their largest ticket sales to date. I spoke with Jamie Albritton, general manager and artistic director, and Connie Quinn, director of advancement and community engagement. With support from the National Endowment for the Arts, Piedmont Opera, then known as Piedmont Opera Theater, debuted its first production in 1978. Forty plus years later, Piedmont Opera produces the highest quality opera productions possible by using international, national, regional, and local professional singers and technicians. Uh, I'm Connie Quinn. I'm the Director of Advancement and Community Engagement for Piedmont Opera. Um, I sometimes say I'm the money lady um, because I'm the fundraiser. I I really think I'm the people person. Um, uh, Relationships are so important to me and and to our whole staff, but I work very hard to to maintain those sort of on our behalf. I'm Jamie Albritton. I am the General and Artistic Director here at Piedmont Opera. I, I am in charge of the the daily sort of running of the company that I am only capable of doing with my tremendous staff. I tell everybody I have the best staff in the whole state and they all get a little backed up. And I'm like, no, it's true. It's true. And I'm also, uh, I create the product as the artistic director. This is a very small company. Uh, We only have uh, five uh, uh, employees that manage to do all of this work. And I am my own chorus master and my own orchestral librarian, and I conduct most of the shows and I direct when I need to. At the height of the pandemic, the opera responded to each obstacle presented with lots of grace and innovation. After realizing that some arts organizations weren't able to maintain staff, either due to a decrease in revenue or health and safety concerns, I was interested in hearing more about employment stability during the pandemic. So let's talk about how you were able to protect your staff during the pandemic. I actually, that was very tricky because the phones were ringing off the hook uh, with ticket buyers. And at the same time, I'd sent everybody home. So by and large, everybody was working from without. And I was the only one that was coming into the office every day. Uh, And I was fortunate that my uh, box office manager was working very closely with me and I would take uh, what was happening in the office and then call her up and we were online with each other taking care of things. Uh, But yeah, I was the single person in the office handling all of that and everybody else was working from home. How did you guys pivot? Like, what did you do to adapt to the changes that the pandemic presented us? In some ways by accident and in some ways very intentionally. Uh, So all of this is cooking along. I'm sitting at the office by myself dealing with, you know, what, what's the future? What, what, you know, we we usually announce next year's uh, season at the opening night of our spring show. So in addition to opening King and I, which we did not do, I was to announce the next season, which was already in progress, which I also had to cancel and did not do. So it was like, wow, what's, when you're running an art form in which the whole point is you gather people together in a small room to ponder the greatness of a work of art, what are you going to do? 
And I really would, didn't have an answer to that. Now, in the meantime, we all know that this, there was a lot of news in New York about how bad this got very quickly and, and that hit before it did here in North Carolina. And the Metropolitan Opera's answer to that was to start to broadcast free of charge an opera every evening on their Met player. And the, that started, which we all took note of in the opera business. And the second week of that uh, lockdown, they started to show an all Wagner week. And Tuesday through Friday of that week, they were going to be showing the Ring of the Nibelungen. Wagner's Ring is one of the most dense, daunting, uh, challenging pieces of music to take in in the operatic repertory. And I was like, wow, week two of lockdown and we're going all the way to Wagner's Ring. Okay. And I thought that was a big bite for an audience to take in the midst of thinking about so many things. In one respect, great idea. Take, you, you're going to take your mind off your problems if you're going to delve into Wagner's Ring. But in another respect, it could be people wouldn't want to go there because it's such a deep dive. So I called a colleague of mine who had been teaching a Wagner class anyway. And I said, okay, look, the Mets, we've been telling everybody, look at the Met on Met Player. And that's what the emails that we've been sending out. We've been doing e-blasts to try to keep people engaged. And uh, I, I said to him, you've got this at your fingertips. Could we do maybe like a Facebook Live, like at noon, we can just like take all the four operas and you can give everybody a little knowledge to help take it apart so that it's not so daunting to them. And he said, sure. So Tuesday, we decided we were going to do this Facebook Live thing. My marketing director, Meredith Apponitis, came into the office. She took out her phone, scooted over one of the end tables in the, in the front room that we have. We work in an old house, so we call it the parlor, the living room. She took out an end table. She went into the kitchen and found a napkin holder that she could tuck her phone into. And that became our studio. The two of us, uh, well, actually, no, it was just my colleague, Stephen Lacoste. He sat down next to the fireplace in the front room. And at noon, we signed on and he started to talk about Wagner's Ring. And Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and there were halfway decent numbers. There were double digits of people watching. So on Friday, before he went on, I said, Steve, ask them if they find this helpful. And if it is, we'll keep it up for a little while and see see if, it, if it'll engage people. Flurries come back. Oh, we love this. Keep doing it. Keep doing it. So, okay, sure. And for the next, I think it was 15 or 16 months, months, <laughs> we did every day at noon, a broadcast, five days a week, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. Steve and I would split it up and whatever the Met announced as, it op as its operas for that evening, we would give a preview every day at noon. And then after a while, it was like, they're tired of looking at the two of us. How can we shake this up? We had done the last opera we did live was uh, Donizetti's Maria Stuarda. So it's an opera about Mary, Queen of Scots and Queen Elizabeth and their feud, if you will. And as part of that, we had sponsored an, an author to come to town who had written about the Elizabethan Queens. She was, we, we, we all got along very well. She was very excited about the opera. It was all interesting to her. And I thought, they're about to show those same operas live from the Met. I wonder if she would do exactly what we're doing right now with me on our little noon show. So I wrote her an email. She said, oh, it sounds fun. So all of a sudden, Opera Talk had a New York Times bestselling author on it. 
And everybody was very excited. What about more guests? So next thing I know, an opera came along in which uh, a, a friend of the company, really, uh, a baritone who sings at the Met occasionally, he was one of the cast members. So I wrote him, would you be willing to? Oh, sure, I'm happy to. So now we had a star from the Metropolitan Opera. And this just kept going every now and again, uh, we would get someone, either an expert on the topic or someone involved in the production to come and be guest on Opera Talk. And there were times during the pandemic when we had over a thousand viewers on those shows while we were inviting all of these people in. And our average listenership, viewership, was like two or 300 a day. Our reach was shocking to me. We, we got to the point where Meredith would continue to come in just for the hour of the broadcast. She would come into the office at a little before 12 and she'd stay till a little after one. And she would sort of sit at the computer and handle all the, the questions and the talk back and the, the feed on the side. And there were people that were signing on from Italy there were people that were signing on from England. There were people that were signing on from across the country. What the heck is happening? I'm so confused, but it was exciting. Little Piedmont Opera was reaching out all over literally the world. That so so we're embracing this new sort of, you know, got no choice forced upon you technology, right? Uh, at the same time, uh, Opera America, which is the service organization for opera in this country, is holding uh, Zoom meetings with all of the general directors across the country because we're all sitting around going, what the hell are we going to do? And at one of those meetings, it was led by the general director at Philadelphia Opera, Opera Philadelphia, I should say. His last words to us, they were making movies, they were talking about, they were filming an opera that was written towards the turn of the century, and they were using interesting lenses, and I'm listening to all this going, yeah, I got nothing. And at the end of it, he said, whatever choices you make as you go, as you, as you struggle with, with providing your, your entertainment during the pandemic, stay true to your mission. That's the best advice I can give you. And it hit me like a ton of bricks. Yes, look at your mission statement. Your mission statement is to uh, provide the finest entertainment to your community and to further the art form. Stop crying in your beer and get to work. It wasn't long after that, that the, uh, the man that records all of our performances, audio records them, had let us know that he was going to, he was considering investing in the capabilities to live stream. And I said, interesting, because about that same time, we were also going to have to sacrifice our annual fundraiser, the Magnolia Ball. And I said to Connie, what about we think about doing the Magnolia Ball virtually? I'm interested to hear more about what it took to put on a production during COVID and to be one of the only operas in the state of Carolina to do so. So what tools, what resources did you guys have to reinvest in new technologies, um, reinvest in new contractors um, to be able to successfully produce an opera? During the pandemic, everybody probably remembers the stories about the choirs that had rehearsal and all of a sudden 40 people had COVID because the, 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 it, we were singers or super spreaders because we take deeper breaths and we send the breaths out further. And so it was determined by the CDC and by a lot of sort of singing organizations 
that the magic number is 12 feet. Singers could perform with each other as long as they were 12 mm -hmm. feet apart from each other. Wow. Uh, there, one of the jokes was, so it, if you took the Westminster Choir College Choir and put them in a football stadium, you might be able to get them all in there at 12 feet of distance to give a concert. So what does that mean? That means I have to find operas, frankly, in which there aren't a lot of people, because if three people are on stage at 12 feet apart, you're out of room. So I started looking around and I came up with three or four scenarios and one by one, they fell apart because it was just the, the logistics of trying to make an opera under those circumstances. I just couldn't make it happen. And one of my last ideas was actually the one that everybody fell in love with. It was going to end up being a double bill of a one-act opera by Carlisle Floyd called Slow Dusk that was set in North Carolina paired with some songs, beautiful narrative songs by Ken Frizzell, who actually lives here in Winston-Salem. Uh, I had had this idea. He has two books of Appalachian folk songs, and they each of them tell such beautiful stories. And I thought, okay, so under COVID, I could get, I could put singers in the orchestra pit to sing the songs. So we're nowhere near each other. And, and dancers could dance the story on stage where they get to be just a little bit closer than the rest of us. And they also, if lit it properly, they might be able to wear a mask. It would be a challenge for them, but we could, we can make this work, right? There's only in the, in the one act opera, there were only three people at a time on stage. So I was like, Who's going to watch this? I'm not sure. But guys, what do you think? And the staff loved the idea. After providing their core audience and new audience members an enormous amount of engaging content that was also educational, and after performing for just the production crew, Piedmont Opera is back operating at full capacity. As we wrapped up our conversation, Jamie reflected on the organization's experience presenting Ragtime. Based on the novel of the same name by E.L. Doctorow, Ragtime is a compelling story that captures the American experience at the turn of the 20th century. Now, when we did Ragtime several weeks ago, that was that was like, we're back. When I did the curtain speech on Sunday afternoon, I walked out onto the stage and there was hardly a, an empty seat in the house. And they all, there's the roar of applause. And I just looked at them and I said, you'll never know what a pleasure that is to hear. In this very theater a year ago, when we finished singing something, there was complete silence because we, we had to wait for the cameras to turn off. Complete silence. And then eventually the lone voice of our stage manager saying, we're clear. And that was it. That was your audience response. What was fascinating about Ragtime, and I understand that it's a musical and I understand that it, it's a terrifically timely musical. I have never in my life felt an audience stay engaged in a show, every single word. I mean, that was the, the, the responses from the audiences. And I don't mean just applause. I mean, somebody would say something on the stage that was supposed to be a little, a little untoward. And the whole room is like, no. <laughs> and, you know, they're clapping in the middle of things. There's one spot where the more enlightened member of one of the families really blesses out the father of the family for being a, a, a racist knucklehead. And he, he says to him, you've traveled all over the, the world and learned nothing. I despise you and walks off the stage. 
and every single performance, the entire house clapping, clapping, clapping. And I was like, God, you guys are really with us. I mean, with us. And I, I'd like to say they would have been anyway, but it was also like, we're so excited to be a part of live theater. We're so excited to be in this conversation with performers on a stage, you know? The pandemic forced profound changes in North Carolina's art and cultural sector. Some organizations will continue with their ventures into the digital world, having realized that online content is equally lucrative and democratizing as it allows arts organizations the ability to reach untapped audiences, including populations who may have historically felt unwelcomed in arts and cultural spaces. If you love opera or are simply curious about the musical genre like myself, Check out Piedmont Opera's live stream, Opera Talk, on Fridays at noon on Facebook. They also offer pre-shows to every opera performance where music scholars present a 25-minute overview of the opera with insights on the music, composer, and historical background. Also, if you're a fan of traditional Appalachian music or interested in visiting the Sokoa Artisans Gallery, the Culture Arts Center calendar is filled with lots of exciting things to do. I'm your host, Kaisha Jennings. Thanks for joining me for this episode of Arts Across NC, a podcast by and about the North Carolina Arts Council. As always, a huge thanks to our special project coordinator, Sam Gerwig, for handling audio production. The original music you've been hearing is by local hip-hop producer Millie Vaughn. Make sure to visit us at ncarts.org slash podcast. And if you enjoyed this season, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. See you all next season.